only source of true delight, whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. What an inheritance we have in Christ. This morning our uh, text uh, for our sermon comes from Matthew chapter 27. If you want to turn there in your Bibles with me. If you uh, don't have your own copy of the Bible. This blue book here is uh, in front of you. Uh, that's a, a copy uh, of the Scriptures as well. That'll be on page 834 of the Blue Bible. This morning we're going to hear from God's Word in uh, Matthew chapter 27 and begin in verse 27 through verse 44. Verse 27, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they would mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him, And led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Wade. Great to be back with you all this morning. I want to give a special welcome to the saints of the newly minted Christ Presbyterian Church in Mansfield. Uh, we've got, got a few of us here scattered among the crowd. Um, just this past presbytery, uh, we were approved to be an official mission church of our presbytery, so that's a huge step for us uh, in the right direction. But uh, it's great to be with you guys this morning. And uh, as, as Steve mentioned earlier, um, this, is the, uh, this is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, so I thought it would be appropriate for us to reflect upon a passage of Scripture that uh, is really the cornerstone of suffering. But before we do that, let's uh, ask God's blessing on our time together. Father in heaven, we uh, thank you for your word and for uh, the truths that uh, are found 
uh, in it. And we thank you that you've given us the promise that you, have, that you will bless it to us, that the power of the Holy Spirit will work in our hearts to convince us of the truths in it and to change our lives as a result of what we hear. Lord, may you create faith in us through the preaching of your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Like I said, I thought it would be appropriate this morning that we think about a passage of Scripture that, uh, that really const- contains the cornerstone of uh, what suffering is all about. Because Matthew's original audience when he wrote this gospel was uh, really part of the original persecuted church. Uh, they were a group of primarily Jewish Christians who had turned from Judaism to Christianity. And uh, what made that particularly difficult for them was that they had had very high expectations of what the Messiah was supposed to be. Uh, he was supposed to be a, a glorious person, someone who uh, would uh, defeat God's enemies in, in a very military kind of way. But uh, that wasn't what they got, was it? They got someone who looked very different. And so uh, upon turning from, their, from the faith of their fathers, or so, so their enemies would tell them, to, to Jesus, they received uh, much scorn, much persecution, much, uh, much difficulty from the hands of their, uh, their family members, of their countrymen. And it wasn't just the Jews who were persecuting them. It was also the Gentiles who thought, uh, who, who would possibly place their trust in someone who was crucified? Who could possibly hang all of their hopes for this life and the next on someone who was killed like a criminal? In fact, if you look at some of the cave drawings from the first century, they have a, there, there's one particular drawing of a, a donkey being crucified. You can kind of hear the veiled message behind that as, as, though, as though to say, anyone who would place their trust in something like that is about as smart as a donkey. So, so these, these early, uh, this early church, these early persecuted Christians would have been asking questions like, was Jesus really who he claimed to be? Is the suffering that I'm experiencing in my life really worth it? Should I continue to hang on to the promises of God, or should we wait for some other Messiah, someone who's a little bit more regal? Could this one who died this shameful death really be God in the flesh? Could the cross really be a work of God as, uh, as the church has said it is? And where is God in the midst of my suffering? Where is God in the midst of my persecution? And why doesn't he do anything about it? In order to answer these questions for them, Matthew describes what I've called the cornerstone of suffering, the cross. And he describes it in such a way as to convince them, uh, to, to persuade them, that this, in fact, even though on the surface it appears to be abject failure, it's in fact the biggest success that God ever achieved in all of history. What appeared to be a, a brutal accident was actually the outworking of God's plan for the lives of his people. And this description of the cross gives them this new lens, this new, uh, this new lens to see their life and to see their own suffering. And on, on a Sunday like, like this, when we talk about the persecuted church, it's easy to think about the, the persecuted church being something that's very, very far away from us. That is, uh, in parts of the country that are 
less developed and that are not as, as mature as the, as the United States in allowing re- religious freedom. And sure, we don't experience the kind of suffering that our brothers and sisters do often, which is a very physical and bodily threat. But what unites us to them and what unites us to the people that Matthew was first writing to are the questions that come up when we are persecuted and when we suffer in our own lives. I know that that everyone in this room either has recently, is currently, or will in in the very near future experience something of the curse of this world. Loneliness, disappointment, uncertainty, sadness, pain, longing for something better. And some of you very profoundly so. And all of us will ask the same questions that our, that our brothers and sisters ask. Where is God when I suffer? Why doesn't he step in and do something about it? And while we, we all have the right answers to those questions, we all know what we should say in those moments, often when we say them to ourselves, we don't believe them. There's this gaping hole between what we say we believe and what, what actually lands in our own soul. Some of us, like our brothers and sisters uh, in Matthew's day and in the, in the persecuted church, are going to experience suffering uh, because of righteousness' sake. We'll be doing the right thing. We'll be living for Christ, and we'll suffer because of it. Now, perhaps you've lost a job because uh, you wouldn't uh, cut corners like, uh, like an employer had asked you to. Um, perhaps you, you're, you're in school, and uh, you, you tell your friends that you're a Christian, and they make you feel stupid for it and say, why, why would you believe that nonsense? God doesn't exist. If he does, it's not it's certainly not uh, have anything to do with Jesus. Your morality will be laughed at as quaint and uh, old-fashioned. So some of us will suffer for those reasons. Some of us suffer as a result of our own foolish choices. We've made bad choices in life, and we're suffering the consequences of them. We're going, where is God in the middle of that? Some of us are suffering because uh, other people want to harm us. Perhaps you've been in or, or are in, a, in an abusive relationship, or you hear uh, people are... People are mean to you. People are ugly to you. And they want to hurt you. You've been betrayed by a friend. And all of us, it doesn't matter who we are, will experience something of living in a broken world. We get cancer. A loved one gets cancer. We get chronic illnesses that just plague us for the rest of our lives. We lose our jobs. We can't find another can't find another job. Our, our retirement accounts get, get wiped out. In other words, so, some way or another, life is not going how we thought it might. It's not progressing how we, how we want it to go. And we're left asking those questions. And it's in those moments, friends, that we need the same truth that, that Matthew is communicating here through this description of the crucifixion. We need to see our own suffering and our own persecution through this lens of the cross, because it's only through the lens of the cross, it's only through looking at Jesus' own suffering that our, that our suffering takes on any meaning and, and that we can find hope in the middle of it. And as we examine the cross, we'll see that God's greatest purposes for us and for this world are most often achieved through life's greatest pain. That God's greatest purposes for you, for your life, and for this world are achieved in, in life's moments of greatest pain and struggle. And I want to look at three truths about the cross that, that 
support that, that, uh, that conclusion, that, that main thesis that we had this morning. First, we'll see that the cross was planned. We'll see that the cross was purposeful. And we'll see that the cross was powerful. The cross was planned, it was purposeful, and it was powerful. Let's look at each of those. First, the cross was planned. At, at first, the scene, as we read this, it looks like it's, a, like, the, like it's an accident. Like there's all of these random details that are just happening to Jesus that we think, uh, this looks like things have completely gone off the rails. Uh, the one that God had sent to redeem Israel is now turned over to the Roman authorities. He's at the government's headquarters, and he's getting beaten by the guards. But Matthew goes out of his way to uh, describe this event for us in such a way to, to, to convince us and to convince his readers that this is not an accident. Things had not gone off course for the way that God had planned this event. But they were, in fact, they were going exactly as God had planned them and as he had predicted that they would happen. Uh, this is not a failure on the part of God's mission, but this is actually the accomplishment of it. Look at, uh, look at verse 34. He tells us that uh, as part of the torment, the soldiers offered Jesus wine mixed with gall when he got on the cross, which is a way of, another way of mocking him because it would look like something refreshing to drink, but it was actually something that was bitter and poisonous, uh, which is why he tastes it and spits it out. But the word translated gall here take, is taken directly from Psalm 69, 21, uh, where the psalmist laments that he had no friends to help him and that they offered him gall instead to drink. Uh, in verse 35, he tells us that the soldiers, they cast lots to determine who would take uh, Jesus' outer garment and his sandals and his headpiece home. That's exactly what David said in Psalm 22:18 happened to him. In verse 36, we're told that the soldiers sat and they kept watch over him, which is what David says in Psalm 22, 17, as, they, as his enemies looked and they gloated over him. Uh, even, even when it says in verse 39 that those who passed by derided him, Wagging their heads. That's a direct quote from Psalm 22.7. And then finally, he knows that when the rulers saw him, they said, he trusts in God. Let, let God deliver him now if he desires him. But they didn't realize that the very words that they were saying to mock Jesus were a quote from Psalm 22.8. As God's enemies are, are throwing their insults upon Jesus, as they're doing these things that seem apparently just random and just things that hateful people do when they don't like somebody, they're actually fulfilling God's plan for Jesus. They're actually carrying out God's own desires for the world. Peter puts it this way in Acts 2. He says, This Jesus, who is delivered up by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God planned it, and these, and these wicked men carried it out. I, I met a guy a few weeks ago at, at Starbucks, and um, we talked about a lot of interesting things for a couple of hours, and eventually the, the conversation turned to Jesus, and uh, he seemed to be, you know, open at least to talk about it. And I asked him, uh, I asked him what he thought about Jesus. And he said, you know, there's one thing that I've never understood about Jesus. And that's this. If God was his father and God had the, the infinite power to do whatever he wanted, when he saw this, when he saw things going completely wrong, why didn't he step in and do anything about it? Why didn't he step in and stop 
these people from treating his son the way that, the way that they were. And he said to me, if you, he said, you have kids? I said, yeah. He said, well, if you had done the same thing and allowed your kids to go through this and not done anything about it when you had the power to do it, I certainly wouldn't think very much of you. And perhaps you thought that at the same time, reading this passage. Perhaps you don't know Jesus and you think, why is it that Christians are always talking about this bloody and, and, and awful experience and, and that this is in their holy book? this description of violence? Why didn't God step in and do anything about it? Perhaps you thought that about your own suffering. Where, where is God? Why doesn't he step in and stop it? If he sees what's going on, he loves me. Why doesn't he do anything? And what I told this, this gentleman is that the reason why God didn't step in and do anything about it was because it was going exactly as he planned it. It was going exactly as he'd written it out, exactly as he'd planned it before the foundation of the world. It was going exactly as he wanted it to. And this wasn't a plan that he sort of hatched and then forced upon his son as if to say, now you're going to do this. But Jesus, remember Jesus' own words, he says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. This is the charge that I have received from my father. He was part of the planning process and said, yes, this I will do. The cross, friends, was a genuine work of God, and it was, it was executed perfectly, even down to the smallest details. And why is that important for us? What, how, how does knowing that Jesus' sufferings were planned help us when, when we face suffering in our own lives? <clears throat> well, it helps us to know that in the same way that Jesus' sufferings were not an accident, Neither are yours. God has planned each and every single one of the, of the details of your life and, and has crafted even the smallest details of your suffering. And, and even when it seems that as though hateful people are doing things to you and saying things to you and ridiculing you, it's not as though God's plan is going off the rails. Just as his enemies do his bidding at the cross, his enemies are doing his bidding even in your life. And friends, that helps us to not be so surprised when suffering comes into our life. Peter puts it this way. He says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. We have to admit that, that suffering in our life appears to be an accident at times. It appears to be uh, just, just random. But not a hair can fall from your head. Not a hair can fall from your head without your father knowing it. How much more the big things in your life? How much more the, the, the major things if a hair cannot fall from your head? Your sufferings are part of God's loving and, and careful fatherly plan for you, for your life, in the same way that they were for Jesus. So he shows us that the cross was a planned event. It was something that was carried out according to God's plan. But he also shows us that the cross was purposeful. It was designed for a reason, and it was meant to accomplish something. So let's take a look at that. You know, if we're really honest, we look at it and we think, this looks pointless. This looks like what, what happens when religious people get carried away. They crucify a good guy like Jesus. But Matthew assures us that what, what happens here, what, what happened here was not pointless. It was not a random 
uh, event. It was, it was very purposeful. But what was the purpose of the cross, and how do we see that in Matthew's Gospel? First, we see that Jesus' death was a sacrifice for sins. We see it was a sacrifice for sins. Look real quickly at, uh, at verse 32. Those, five, those four words at the beginning of that verse tell us something more profound. It says, as they went out. As they went out. Matthew lets us know that Jesus' crucifixion did not take place in the city of Jerusalem, but he was paraded outside of the city to be crucified on a hill. And he goes out of his way to locate that, that crucifixion out, outside there because Matthew knows that this is not just a normal event, but this is, this is something that the Old Testament sacrificial system had been pointing to all along. Because in the Old Testament, the sacrifices that were offered in the temple, they, they had to be taken outside of the city to be burned on the, in, in the valley outside the city to show the God's people that their sins that the sins that they had been atoned for in their sacrifices were removed from them. They were far away. They were outside the city and burned up and, and to, be, to be part of their lives no more. And that's what he's communicating to us here. Uh, Jesus was crucified outside the city gates to show us that it was a sacrifice for sins. It was a sacrifice for your sins and for mine. The author of the Hebrews puts it this way. He says, So Jesus also, like the Old Testament sacrifices, suffered outside the city gates in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. That was one of the purposes of Jesus' sacrifice. It was a sin-bearing sacrifice. The second thing we see on, uh, regarding the purpose of Jesus' crucifixion was that it was, that it bore, the, that Jesus was bearing the curse of God. A few weeks ago in our Bible study in Mansfield, we talked about <clears throat> uh, what it means to be cursed. We use the word blessing a lot in, in our circles, but we don't often think about what it means to be cursed by God. What does it mean to be cursed? But if you... Uh, I won't make you turn there now, but when you get home, turn back to Deuteronomy 28, and you'll find 58 verses of a vivid description of what it means to be cursed. And I'll just give you a, a brief picture of what that, what that paints for us. He says that you'll, you'll be confused and frustrated in everything that you do. You'll, receive, you'll get wasting diseases. The heavens will be bronze and the earth iron underneath you. <clears throat> you'll be attacked on all sides by your enemies. You'll go mad, you'll go blind, confu and be confused in your mind. You'll have moments where there's potential hope. It looks like things are going to turn around only to be snatched away from you uh, right before your eyes. It won't be to have God away from you. It will be to have God using all of his resources to crush you. Your days will be so miserable that you'll wish it was nighttime when you wake up in the morning. Night will be, but night will be so miserable that you'll wish that it was morning. You'll wish that it was daytime. Constantly thirsty, unprotected, vulnerable, never satisfied, nothing working in your life. You'll have, this is a quote, trembling heart, failing eyes and a languishing soul. No rest, no assurance, no stability, 
You'll become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the people. At the end of the service, we often hear the blessing, that great ironic blessing from number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you grace. Lord, turn his face towards you and give you peace. But the words that Jesus heard on the cross, friends, were, may the Lord curse you and harm you. May the Lord make his wrath burn against you and show you no grace but only judgment. May the Lord turn his face away from you and give you nothing but everlasting unrest. That's what it means to be cursed, friends. And that, that, that I'm sure that all of us can, can identify with some of those descriptions at some point in our life. And that's what it means to live in a world that is under the curse of God. But, friends, that is what Jesus bore on the cross. He was cursed by God. And that's what it means when Matthew tells us that Jesus was crucified. Because God's, word, God's own word says that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. What does that mean for us? What does it mean that, that, that Jesus' sufferings were, were perfect, purposeful in this way? Well, it helps us, first of all, to, to understand <clears throat> at least something of the purposes behind our own suffering. God has not revealed to us the, the exact purposes behind each of, our, each of our own circumstances and our own suffering. In fact, he's kept that hidden from us mercifully in many, many uh, ways. Uh, but the... the the purposes of Jesus' sacrifice reveal to us the priorities of God's uh, sending suffering into our own lives. Uh, first of all, we know, we know what it's not. If these are true, then we know what it's not. We know what our suffering is not. It, it cannot be God's judgment for your sin. It cannot be God's judgment for your sin. Jesus bore all of that on the cross. He finished it. And we cannot add to that. It cannot be bearing the curse that's due to you for, for sins, for something you, that you've done, for something that you did in the past, for anything you will do in the future. That, that punishment has been laid upon the shoulders of Jesus and has been finished. And so when we're suffering, we cannot think, God is displeased with me. God is angry with me, and so he's coming after me and, and making my life difficult because of something that I did. It cannot be that. It's also important to recognize that our sufferings are not always primarily meant to help us in our circumstances. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. Oftentimes we think when we suffer, well, God took this job away from me in order, he must have another job out there that's better for me. Or God ended this relationship, and so he must have something better for me out there in the out there somewhere. He must have someone prettier than, than the one that I was with. It's not, it, well, he may be doing those things. I don't want to say that he's not, but if we think that uh, suffering is merely meant to sort of uh, give us these other things in life that we want, a better job, a better mate, then, then we're going to miss the, the very important priorities of what, of what God is doing for us and in us in our suffering. So what does he want? What, what are the purposes behind our suffering? Well, 
let me put it this way. He, wa- he wants to bring about the fruit in your life of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. He wants to bring about in your life what Jesus accomplished on the cross. He, he wants you to cling to Jesus as your only hope in this world. He wants you to, to cling to God and say, you are all I have. And if that's his goal, for us to, to be sad for our sin and to cling to God and to God alone and to Christ and to Christ alone, then, then suffering is going to work its way into our life in a way that's going to expose the places where we have, where we have not done that, where we don't, that are keeping us from that. It's, he's going to expose those, those dark and unswept corners of our life that, that we want to hide and just would rather you know, be left alone. And when life's going well, we don't tend to think about those dusty corners of our hearts. But suffering has a powerful way of bringing that about. He wants to humble us. He wants us to be less confident in ourselves. He wants us to be more confident in Him. He wants us to, to worship Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And oftentimes we're satisfied with loving Him with enough of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. When Lisa and I first moved here about two years ago, it's hard to believe it was that long, uh, to plant a church in Mansfield, I, I was pretty confident in our ability to do that. I'd been to seminary. I had good theology. We had a strong marriage. And so I thought all those things would sort of come together, and this is going to be, it's going to work. We're going to go down there. And we're going to we're going to plant this church, and it's, and it's going to go well. After all, it's what I've been trained to do, right? But what we didn't have, and what we're just even seeing the beginnings of having, is, is that we didn't have a true sense of our need for Jesus Christ. People out there, people down there, people out in our neighborhoods, they're the ones who need Jesus, and that's why we're there. Not us. But uh, the Lord has begun to, to slowly expose that weakness in our character through, uh, some of the, through two of the hardest years in our life. In March, we, we went away to get some help for our marriage. And uh, when we came back, we came back charged up, ready to go again, just excited and, and ready to go and, and move forward with even the small group that we had left there in Mansfield in, in the spring. And about 24 hours after we got back, riding high on the wave of of, uh, being excited for this, I had lunch with the one couple from Mansfield that that was still there. And he said, this church is not for us. We were left with virtually nobody. And Lisa and I sat on our couch and and wept and, and said... God, what are you doing? You sent us to do you sent us to do something good. You sent us to, to do something that you like and that you care about to plant a church here. Why won't you make it work? Why does it appear to be just falling through our fingers? And it was there that we realized that, that we didn't want God. We didn't feel like we needed God in our life. I wanted God. To do for me what I wanted, and that was a success, to plant a successful church. 
I didn't want more of him. I wanted more success. I wanted him to get on my agenda and to do what I wanted in this life. And it wasn't until we realized that that we had to see ourselves as, as the objects of God's grace. We had to see ourselves as people who needed Christ and his grace if we were ever going to minister to other people. Now, he may use that in great ways and plant a great church in Mansfield. He may not. But the the work that he is accomplishing in in my heart and in your hearts as you go through the same process in your own life and and suffer through uh, great uncertainties and great pains, he's accomplishing his, his own purposes in your heart. So the cross was, was planned. The cross was purposeful. But it's not enough to just know that God has purposes. It's not enough to just know that, that he has an aim in your life. The question that, that is really on our minds is, is, can God get the job done? Does God have the power to accomplish the purposes that he set out to do? And Matthew shows us that in fact, that not only was the cross planned and it was purposeful, it was also powerful. It also has the power to achieve what God set out to do. More than anything else, you can hear it in the voice of, of the crowds. What appeared on the hill outside Jerusalem appeared to be utter weakness, utter failure. Listen again to their mocking. Come down from the cross if you're the Son of God. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let him come down from the cross. Jesus, show us that you're really powerful, and then we'll believe in you. Show us your power, Jesus. Where's all the rule and the command and destroying the temple and all of that stuff that you said when you were not nailed to a cross? If you're really the Son of God, then you'll show up in impressive ways in my life. But before we, before the rulers write him off as a failure, there's something that Matthew does not want us to miss. He doesn't want you to miss it either. He wants us to see that Jesus suffered as a king. He wants us to see that Jesus suffered as a king. In verses 27 through 31, look at that. He says, the soldiers mock Jesus. They put a scarlet robe around his shoulders. They put a crown on his head. They put a king's scepter in his right hand. And they thought it was funny because he was dressed like a king, but he wasn't acting like one. And to top it off, they they nail him to the cross. They put above it, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Why does Matthew draw us to these, these kingly mockings? He does it because he doesn't want us forget to forget that while Jesus appeared to be weak, he never ceased to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He never ceased to be the King of the universe. He never ceased to be your King as he laid down his life for you. It was not inability, it was not weakness, it was not impotence that, that kept him up there. He could have done. He could have satisfied their wishes and and called down the angels and said, you want to see power? I'll show you power. But he didn't. 
And it wasn't his weakness that held him there. It was the inexhaustible strength of a king. And it was that, it was, it was that triumphal procession as a king that finished the work that he set out to do. The very things that made him look weak were things that showed him to be a king, showed him to be powerful. God uses weak things, apparently weak things in our lives to accomplish powerful purposes. Jerry is the, uh, the father of one of my seminary colleagues. And Jerry's from Peru. And back in the 70s, I think it was, he was the top official for uh, the Communist Party in Peru. Uh, he was uh, militant, violent, orphaned, uh, many children through the violence of, this, uh, of their regime. Uh, he, just to give you a mental picture, picture uh, Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now, if you've seen that, in the Latin version of it. And this is like Che Guevara, if you've seen him. I mean, this is, this is a, an intimidating guy. And uh, he, was, uh, he was understandably confident in everything that he had. He, lo- he looked like a strong guy, somebody you would be afraid of. And uh, my friend Nathaniel's mom, who wasn't his mom at this point, obviously, was down there as a missionary in Peru. And she's just this little, little American lady. And she ha- happens to run into Jerry and says, uh, Jerry, uh, they struck up a friendship. And he said, she said, why don't you come with me to a Bible study? And his thought was, yes, I'll go to this Bible study with her. And then she'll have to come to my communist meeting. And we'll get her wrapped up in all of our propaganda. And we'll have another convert to, to, to our a powerful regime. So he says, oh, okay, yeah, I'll go with you. So militant, strong, uniformed Jerry, uh, you know, boots and all, walks into this Bible study. And through a simple just exposition of the Word of God, he's converted to Christ. And he turned his back on, on years of communist propaganda and of, of, of all of these things that appeared to be just running the country, he said, none of that anymore. And uh, his communist friends were, were after him. They wanted his life. They wanted to take him out because he turned their, his back on the cause. And he had to flee the country in order, to, in order to survive. And he ends up getting married to the lady who invited him to the Bible study. And now Jerry's a minister in our denomination. Uh, he's actually a, a missionary in Peru. Went back there after the after the uh, Communist Party had fell, had fallen, and he adopted into his family the orphans of the people that he had killed during his time as a communist leader. Weak things, friends. A Bible study. And the power to to upend this confident and strong man and to accomplish great things for God's kingdom. And the weakness of Jesus on the cross was God's strongest act in all of history. God's greatest purposes, friends, are accomplished through life's greatest pain. Have you wondered where God's power is in your life? Have you been asking yourself, where is God in my own suffering? Where is God in my life? What I want you to ask yourself, where are you hurting right now? 
Where is life's greatest pain? What are the people and circumstances that are pressing you and squeezing you and making life difficult? Don't waste that. Don't miss that. Look to those and say, this is where God is, is, is refining me. This is where God is accomplishing his purposes in my life. Because he's planned every one of those things. And he is accomplishing purposes in your life. And he is powerful to get it done. And he will. Because he has promised to do it. And he has shown us that through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that... We thank you that you are at work in our lives, even when at times we think you've abandoned us. Forgive us, Father, for the ways that we have doubted your your good purposes in our lives, and forgive forgive us for the ways that we have um, fought against your own purposes for us. Help us to repent. Help us to turn from from our own pride, our own self-sufficiency, our own lack of, of apparent lack of need for your grace and your promises and to turn to Jesus, to turn to him and to place our trust in what appears to be weak, what appears to be of nothing, in the trust that it is in, that, it is in those very things where your work is taking place. Encourage us, Father, as we suffer and help us to go towards the end to, you, to which you have called us when uh, you will undo the curse for good for all of creation, including all of your people, um, in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, bring us there by your grace and by your grace alone. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. The pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my life. Come with blissful rain Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away?